Pride is a wrongful estimation of oneself, an egotistical view of oneself in which he or she believes they are greater than they truly are. It's a misplaced confidence in self. Pride is the beginning of a man or a woman feeling as if they are self-sufficient, not in need of God because they are enough for themselves. Pride says, why do I need God and his word when I have so much to offer already? In this passage in Genesis 3, we see up close and personal both pride and shame. We see this in the challenging of the authority of God in verses 1 and 6. Let's look back at those. In verse 1, we see where the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And then in verse 6, we see that the woman taking the word of the serpent. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We see in these verses that Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent to believe that God's authority was not binding to them. That God did not know what was best, but that ultimately they knew better than God knew. The serpent puffed up Adam and Eve to believe that they were deserving of more than God had given them. They deserved more than just being made in God's image. They deserved more than just having dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and ruling over the land that he had created. No, they deserve much more than this. They deserve to be like God. That's what the serpent convinced them of. That's what they believed. They puffed up their chest and believed, no, we deserve better than what we've already been given. They challenged God's authority and said that it was meant for themselves, not meant for God. But if we really think about it, we realize that challenging God's authority is the first step that we all take when we choose to sin. When we, when we choose to sin, we look at God's authority, we look at God's rules, we look at what he's placed in front of us, and we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not what's best for me. I know what's better. God, you don't know what's good for me. I know what's good for me. And we see this as a side effect of a misplaced identity an identity that says we're greater than our creator. When we, when we question the authority of God, we portray ourselves as our own God to be trusted, and we distort the true God as if he was meant to be made in our image, meant to display our likeness, and meant to follow after our desires. That's not who God is. God is not meant to be made into our likeness. We were made in his. God's not meant to follow after what we are, what we enjoy, what we want. We're meant to do that for him. And we know this isn't who God is, and we're going to see more of that as we get into the deeper, into point three and the healing of grace. But we also can, will learn that this isn't truly who we want God to be either. We don't want God to be a man-made image who we think is best, for he is much greater than we could ever imagine him to be. The true God is much more glorious than the God that we try to make him out to be. Looking back at the text, we see that, again, that sin starts with questioning God's authority. And I think sometimes our familiarity with this passage, the fact that we know it so well, that we've read it over and over and over again, kind of hurts us when we go back to read this passage again. Because if you read this passage intentionally, you can almost hear the hiss of the serpent uh, when he begins to lure Adam and Eve into their pride. Did God really say, does God really care about you? Don't you know better than God? 
wouldn't this be so much better if you were in control instead of God? You know, you can almost hear the evil in his voice as he's saying this to Adam and Eve. But we see that these are the questions we ask ourselves too. We question God's authority with the pride of our own hearts. And so we see Adam and Eve's pride very clearly when they're questioning God's command, when they're going after their lust to be made like God. Their want for power drove them to disregard the good commandment of God to not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. So in a mere moment, they had disregarded their maker. They had turned their backs on the infinite creator that chose to walk with them in the garden. And why did they do this? Because they felt as if they no longer needed him. Uh, If they could be made like God, if they could have wisdom, if they could eat of this tree and know what God knows, then being disobedient to him was minor. It's not that big of a deal. If we're going to be able to control ourselves, if we can take care of ourselves, it doesn't matter if we're disobedient to God. They thought that they could become self-sufficient, self-satisfying. They thought that they knew better than the all-knowing, all-wise God. And when we think about this, we, we say that's crazy. How could they know better than God? How could they think themselves wiser than God? How could they question his authority? That's ridiculous until we kind of take a step back and think about it and we see that we do this too each and every day. We do this even when we have God's word. We know God's good promises to those who keep his commandments. In Psalm 25.10, it tells us that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. We know that God has plans for us, plans to give us a hope and a future. In the song we just sang, it says, your plans are for us to prosper. You haven't forgotten us. We know that about our God. But even when we know this, what do we do? We, we trust in ourselves. We act in our pride. We don't listen to the God of creation, but we listen to ourselves. We act according to our own desires, believing that we know better than God does. We seek to create a new identity for ourselves instead of living in the one that we are created for. We create our own plans and seek our own glory and try to exalt our own name. We seek the attention of our peers instead of focusing their affections on Christ. We seek the praise that comes with good grades or a big new job and neglect our devotion to the Lord. We trust the backstabbing pleasure of sexual sin instead of heeding God's warning of the hurt and brokenness that it brings. We think we know better than God. We've convinced ourselves that we are wiser than the all-wise creator. Or, sometimes we know what's right. We know God's promises are good and true. We know God has plans to prosper us. It's not a knowledge problem at that point. It's not that we think ourselves better. We know God's good. But for some reason, we think of ourselves as unable to fall short, unable to stumble. We have pride in our hearts that says we're invincible and we no longer need to set up the guardrails of our own hearts. We think that we no longer need boundaries because there's no way that we would throw away God's glory like those other people around us. We know better than that. And then we end up distorting the name of God just like Adam and Eve because our pride builds us up to a point where all that we can do is fall. I think far too often in the church and the Christian life, our temptation when it comes to covering up the gospel is not to hide the gospel under a bushel of timidity as we often sing in the song, but we forget the gospel under the cloud of our own pride. We think ourselves sufficient and we no longer see, have a need to remember the good news of a king that came to save sinners. 
we forget our need for a Savior, and the next thing we know, we're biting into the fruit. And why do we do this? Because we're unable to keep ourselves. There's one who is faithful. There's one who is able to keep us. There's one who knows us and cares for us, but we have spurned him, forgotten him, and trusted in ourselves. And it's caused us to grasp after sin, even though it will never satisfy. In Psalm chapter 10, verse 4, it tells us, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, and all of his thoughts are, There is no God. Our pride leads us to a point to think that we know better than God, that there is not a God who is in control of us, but we are in authority of our own life. Pride is a ruthless foe. Pride has a hold on each and every one of us, unfortunately, and will until the day that we meet our Maker. It's ingrained into us by our sinful nature. Entitlement, selfishness, and many, many sins stem from the root of pride. But what happens when the prideful fall? When those that are holier than thou are stained by sin? The only thing that is left is shame. So let's look at point number two, the shame that comes after. And I think in verses 7 through 11, we see the shame of Adam and Eve in overwhelming fashion after they have disobeyed God. If you look at those verses, you see that Adam and Eve realized their nakedness and realized their sinfulness as their eyes were opened to the knowledge of good and evil after eating of the fruit. And their immediate reaction to their sin was one of shame. This was not something that came later. This was not something that came um, silently, but immediately in their sin, they realized their shame. They covered themselves and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They knew that the holy God they had once walked with was now set apart from them, separated from them. And immediately they saw their own blemishes and they saw their own brokenness in a way uh, that really we can relate to, but we can never imagine when you've been walking with God in the garden in intimacy with him like we've never known. And then all of a sudden you're broken, blemished. They saw it and they were ashamed. They hid themselves. The God who moments before they just disregarded because of their pride, they now hid from in shame, realizing his holiness. But we look at this and I ask the question, is this not us yet again? Whether we have given up and have just indulged wholeheartedly in our sin, or whether we are clawing after righteousness and just seem to fall short over and over again, the feeling of shame is not a stranger to any of us. There's sometimes that even in the Christian life, it feels like shame is supposed to be there. As Christians, we're supposed to have shame over our sin, aren't we? If we're supposed to be holy, but we can't, we're supposed to always obey God, but we don't, how else are we supposed to respond to failure other than being ashamed? We're all too familiar with this feeling of failure. The feeling that no matter what we do, we'll always disappoint. The feeling that we can never be forgiven. The feeling that we have embarrassed ourselves and we've embarrassed our God. It's a shame, disgust, disappointment. We've all felt this, some more deeply than others. But we've each tried to hide our own nakedness from the Father. We've each tried to keep silent when God asks, where are you? When he comes searching for us in the midst of our rebellion. We all know that feeling of grit and grime that comes after sin that just makes you feel nasty. 
that hang your head because you don't have the strength to pick it up kind of feeling. Shame is real and shame is dark. I think it's not a, a too far step to take that also shame we know is a result of pride. For when we believe ourselves to be infallible, believe ourselves to have no room for failure, the only end result will be shame. When we trust ourselves as self as self-sufficient, we'll be ashamed as we discover that we aren't, and we never will be. When our hearts are full of pride, shame is quick to follow. We see this in God's Word. In Proverbs 11, verse 2, it says that when pride comes, then comes disgrace. If we look back at the story of Genesis chapter 3, what happens next? So they've sinned, they've rebelled, they've been ashamed. But what happens when God finds them after he asks, where are you? Immediately in their shame, their next step in defense of themselves was to turn to blame. A direct root of pride and shame. Well, it wasn't my fault, God. No, it was her fault. And if we look closer, Adam says to God that it was the woman whom you gave to me. Their shame for their sin did not bring repentance or even apology. It merely brought more sin. It highlighted more pride. Well, God, it wasn't my fault. God, actually, it really was your fault because you made this woman. The pride of their hearts is unbelievable. Um, when we, we see it, we, I mean, it's amazing the boldness to look at a holy, almighty, infinite creator having just squandered intimacy with him and then blaming him for it. And yet again, I ask the question, is this not us? Is this not what we do over and over and over again? We boast in ourselves, hide in our shame, push responsibility for our sins on others, and simply try to save our own skin. We live in a vicious cycle of pride and shame, pride and shame, one leading back to the other, it seems as if the proverbial circle of life would be better represented by a wheel turning on its end with pride on one side and shame on the other that just keep coming up one after the other, one after the other. But before we move away from shame and start to look at the healing that comes with grace, I believe the passage of Scripture where we see shame most clearly displayed is in Peter's denial of Jesus in Matthew 26. So we all know this story, so I'm just going to kind of generally talk about it. I'm not going to directly read from it, but it's, it's the story where Peter tells Jesus that he will never turn away from him. He will never disappoint him. To which Jesus tells Peter, actually, you're going to deny me three times before morning, before the rooster crows. And Peter looks back at Jesus and says that even if I have to die, I will never deny you, Jesus. And so in this, first off, we see Peter's pride more than anything, that he would look at Jesus and say, Actually, no, you're wrong. I know better than you, and I'm going to will myself to victory even when, I'm gonna, even when you know I'm going to fall short. But we look at Peter, and we look at ourselves again, and we see that we do this too, don't we? Lord, I promise I'll do better. Lord, I promise I'll never do that again. Lord, I'll never watch that again. I'll never speak like that again. I'll never go there again. I'll be clean, I promise. This time I'm going to be clean. I know I said this last time. I know I said I was going to... I would do anything to follow after you. I know I said I'm not going to run back to this, but this time I'm going to be clean. But then what happens after we say that? We'll look at Peter. What happens with him? 
We know that before morning, Peter denies Christ three times, just as he told Jesus that he would never do. And the last time that he does it, we hear the rooster crow, and, he, and Peter remembers exactly what Jesus foretold. And what does Peter do next in this situation? He weeps. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 26, the exact words are that he wept bitterly. Why did he weep? He knew this was going to happen. Jesus told, this, told him this was going to happen. It was his own fault. But he wept because he hated his sin. He hated his, he hated his rejection of Jesus, and he felt the deep, deep weight of it all. And I feel like this is us as followers of Jesus. Often we are not blind to our sin. Often our sinfulness is not a result of not knowing. But more times we know how serious our sin is, and yet we still do it. We are broken, rotten people bound by this world, and this causes us to weep bitterly. But the beauty of this story isn't found in that Peter struggles with shame too, just like you and me. But the beauty of this story is found in John chapter 21, where after his resurrection, Jesus goes to Peter. And when he goes to Peter in John chapter 21, Jesus reunites with Peter, reaffirms his love for him. He gives Peter a task to feed his sheep. And then he reminds Peter of their love for one another. And the beauty is that Jesus does this for us. Jesus does not leave us to wallow in our shame. No, but even when our sins are deeper than we could ever imagine, he does not just leave us on the side of the road broken, but he comes to us. No, for the children of God, for the children of God, Jesus Christ comes and gently takes our shame on himself. He bears it for us. When we have wronged him, he takes the shame from us. Even though our sins are directly against him, he still welcomes us. He knows our hurts and he comforts us. Yet this has always been the way that God has handled sin. Sometimes when we get the idea of God in our mind and we think about the Old Testament, we think of the Old Testament God as one of wrath and anger and fury and fire and one that when he looks at sin is so disgusted by sin that he never even thinks twice about those people. But that is a misunderstanding of who God is. God has not changed um, after Jesus. He is the same God in the Old Testament. God has always handled our sin with love and gentleness. If we look back at Genesis chapter 3 where we started, we can look in verse 20, and what does God do? He clothes Adam and Eve. Where Adam and Eve were ashamed was because of their nakedness. It says that they saw and they knew their nakedness and they were ashamed and so they hid themselves from God. But what does God do for them in their nakedness? He clothes them. He takes away that which they were ashamed of and he cares for them. He gently comforts them. This doesn't mean that their sin didn't have consequences. We can look around today and see the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, and they're still in effect today. Pride and shame are still deeply rooted in each and every one of us today. But even though there were serious consequences for their sin, God still was gentle with them and clothed them. And I think this is kind of where Christians often misunderstand shame. We, we misunderstand the difference between conviction and consequences and shame. 
in the midst of sin, Christians are meant to feel conviction over their sin. They aren't meant to feel nothing when they sin. They're meant to feel the weight of their sin, but they aren't meant to be filled with shame. It's not meant to leave them hurting in their shame. Conviction is good and necessary in the life of the believer. But how do we know the line and the difference between conviction and shame? Well, first and foremost, we know that conviction comes from the Holy Spirit and that shame comes from the devil. And they manifest themselves in very, very different ways. And so the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit always comes with gentleness and grace for the purpose of restoring us back to God and for giving us freedom from from sin. Just as we see in Genesis 3 and in John chapter 21, this conviction that came with Jesus, with God, with the Holy Spirit, is one of gentleness, grace, and restoration. But shame that comes from Satan comes with accusations, comes with threats, and it's meant to make us call it's meant to cause us to curl up and dwell in our sin even more. And so when we think about conviction and we think about shame, we can distinguish them based on one is coming out of love and pointing us back to Jesus Christ and reminding us of his grace. One is saying that we can never be forgiven and that we will never uh, be worthy of knowing God because of our sin. So in, we see in Adam and Eve and in Peter's shame that God came to them. He didn't come in accusation, but he came in gentleness. And he comes to us today, and so let's look at the healing of God's grace. We know that shame comes from a misunderstanding of our identity. And when we, we talked about earlier that when our actions are the only thing that define our identity, it only makes sense that we would either be full of pride when our actions live up to all of our expectations, or that we would be full of shame when we fall short of the glory of God. But there is much more to our identity than merely our most recent act. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 103. And let's look at what God has to say about our identity, about pride, about shame, and about forgiveness. When you get there, turn to verse 1. We're going to jump around a little bit, but I think we're going to see the glory of God's forgiveness in this passage very clearly. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit who crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. Now skip down to verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. So far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I'll jump to verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. 
this does not sound like a God who delights in shame, but it sounds like one who heals and one who restores the broken, one who redeems us from the pit, who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy, one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, one who deals with us as a father deals with compassionately with his children. One who removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, whose love is um, as high as the heavens are above the earth. I think when we read this and we remember the God that we're serving, we, I can say confidently that there is no place for shame in the kingdom of God. Because shame is the result of unforgiven sin, binding sin, slavery to sin. But this is not our state if we are in Jesus Christ. For in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, our chains have been loosed, and we have been set free. Shame is not holy. We often believe that the holy way to respond to our sinfulness is in shame. That if I truly hate my sin, if I truly love God, if I truly follow after Jesus, then I should be ashamed of myself for the fact that I ran to that foolishness. But that is not true. Look at verse 4. He has redeemed us out of the pit. He has given us grace. Why do we hold on to shame where Jesus Christ has given us joy? We think that the best way to rid ourselves of, sin, of sinful tendencies is to shame ourselves out of them. But that doesn't work. It's never worked. It is deeply prideful to think that you or I who failed ourselves over and over and over again will be able to will ourselves out of, into freedom from sin. No, shame is binding. It's like a vortex that continually sucks you back in over and over and over again and beats you down until you're weary and broken. But we're told in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, that everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus will be free from shame and from guilt. How? Because he has taken it for you on the cross. The sin that you committed is paid for on the cross. The shame that you're holding on to paid for on the cross. There is grace for our failures in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness of our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace leads to repentance, not shame. For when you taste grace, you taste the goodness of what it means to walk in communion with God. You taste the goodness of restoration. And grace gives us the genuine desire to walk in holiness for the glory of the one who has made us whole. Grace gives us the, the strength to say to Satan, you have no power here because I've been cleansed by the blood of the Lord. Grace gives us freedom. Shame entangles us, entraps us, ensnares us. But grace frees us. And grace gives us peace. Grace is offered to each of us. God is not stingy with his grace. He gives freely to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, for that is where grace is found. Repent and believe. Run to Jesus. Acknowledge your sin, confess it to the Lord, confess it to the church, and be free from shame. Sin has no hold on those who are held in the arms of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 reminds us, that Jesus says to us, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We are weak and broken people, but we have one that we can boast in that is strong. And his glory is made known in our weakness. Our goal for our shortcomings is not merely to hide our shame or to hide them, but we can glory in the confession of sin because it brings praise to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His power is made perfect in weakness. There's freedom in the light. I think when speaking on pride, it's easy to try to shame people uh, or to shame ourselves. When we remind ourselves of our unworthiness when speaking of pride, we often go too far and forget that while we are unworthy in ourselves, we have value that is fixed by the blood of Jesus. And so the end goal of removing pride is not shame, but it's humility. And when speaking on shame, it's easy to instill in people with a false sense of pride to tell people of how great they are and how much they deserve instead of humbly showing people the grace of the Lord Jesus offered to take their shame. Humility and grace are distinctly different from pride and shame. And grace is offered to the humble at the foot of the cross. And there's good news, and it's that God did not choose those who were strong to save themselves. Jesus did not die on a cross so that we could rely on our own good works to earn our way into heaven. No, Jesus died on the cross so that broken people, hopeless people, who had no chance of earning their salvation, could be saved by his grace. Pride will leave us hopeless and broken, ashamed of how we've disappointed ourselves over and over and over again, even when we try our best to be good people. Shame will lead us into darkness and tell us that we could never be forgiven for what we've done, for how we've fallen short. Humility will show us that we could never deserve mercy and forgiveness from God because we've disobeyed our holy and perfect creator. But grace will show us that even though we didn't deserve it, Christ gave himself in love for us on the cross that we may be restored back to God. Pride and shame lead us to be egotistical and to be broken. Humility and grace show us that we are broken, but that there's a great healer. And there's a healer that restores us in love. We have nothing to offer, and yet we have worth. Not worth from what we bring to the table, but worth in that the one and only Son of God came from heaven in order that we might be forgiven and that he might be praised. Shame has no place in the kingdom of God. Pride has no place in the kingdom of God. For how could we be prideful when he has done it all for us? How could we be prideful when we bring nothing to the table? But yet we have no reason to be ashamed because he's wiped it away. God has already taken our shame on himself. Jesus has borne it for us on the cross. We do not have to live in shame and darkness. Shame does not breed healing. Grace breeds healing. This is good news. We don't have to dwell in darkness, but we can walk in the light. There's freedom found in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Freedom from shame, freedom from pride, freedom from guilt. To walk in humility and to walk in grace. I want to conclude by reading to you the words of the modern hymn that says, My worth is not in what I own by Keith and Kristen Getty. It says here that my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. 
My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, the wellspring of my soul, and I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the way that you've taken our guilt and you've taken our shame. God, thank you that you are good to us and that you care for us. God, thank you that we do not have to deal with our sin on our own, but that it was paid for by Jesus on the cross. God, thank you that we don't have to live in darkness, but we're free to walk in the light. God, I pray that you'll bring healing to the people of this church. God, that we'll not be people that hide our sin or dwell in shame, but God, that we'll be unshockable people that are easy to confess to, and God, that we're quick to confess our sins to one another. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. I pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I would like for maybe this time for you to pray on your own uh, and take some time uh, for confession to God for areas of your life that you're still holding on to shame. Confess those to the Lord. Confess to God that there's no reason for shame. Ask the Lord Jesus to fill you, to bring grace into your life, and then take time to ask the Lord for humility that we won't rely on ourselves, but we'll trust in Him fully.